This is The Guardian. Today, has new research brought us closer to understanding the cause of sudden infant death syndrome? Just before we start, this episode does include the account of losing a baby. If that's going to be difficult for you right now, maybe come back to this one. Otherwise, please take care when listening. Louise, did you always know that you wanted to have children? Not at all. When we got married, it's not even something that we had discussed. and We were just young and happy-go-lucky, and I fell pregnant by accident. It was 20 years ago when Louise Barrett and her husband Jim found out they were having Ellis, their first baby. The birth was really straightforward. My waters went at midnight. Um, we went to the hospital um, probably about 4am. Uh, I'd elected for a water birth, so it was all very gentle and nice. Can you remember the moment you first met Ellis? It was quite strange because he was born and the cord was round his neck. So they cut the cord and then they took him straight away. So I didn't get to see him or hold him for at least the first five or ten minutes. And then they brought him back and it was just amazing. He was this pink little thing and he was looking at me and it was that amazing love that you get for a child the minute they're born. It was an absolutely incredible feeling to think, wow, I've just made this baby. It's, it's a really is a great feeling. And what was Ellis like? Well, he was actually two weeks early, so he was quite small. He was only six pounds two when he was born, so he was very small compared to the other babies that were on the ward. There was a, an interesting comment made by the nurse who did the checks who said, oh, you can tell that you didn't have any drugs because he was really alert and it's almost like he interacted with her. It was just a really lovely time. He was born on the Wednesday. We went home at Friday tea time. I, th I think I was quite nervous about going home, but we got on with it. We went home and had our tea and just sat there watching him, really. What happened next to Ellis is every parent's worst nightmare. Sudden infant death syndrome, also known as SIDS or cot death, is the diagnosis given when a baby dies suddenly, unexpectedly, and with no obvious explanation, usually within the first few months of their life. The unknowable mystery of these deaths shatters families. It leaves parents feeling stigmatised, and in some historic cases, even sent to prison. Today, around 200 babies a year die of SIDS in the UK. But a few decades ago, that figure was 10 times higher. While there have been strides with public health campaigns on safe sleeping, there is still so much left to understand. And now, significant new research might offer more clues. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, are we closer to understanding the tragedy of sudden infant death syndrome? Louise, can you tell me what happened when you went to bed that night? 
Ellis Lobsley was in our room that night. Because he'd come early, we hadn't quite got prepped to where we needed to be. So we had the pram upstairs. And so the idea was is that he would sleep in that the first night whilst we got ourselves organised. I was breastfeeding at the time. So I brought him into bed probably about two or three o'clock to feed because he'd woken up. And at the end of the day, I was a new mum, I was tired, I'd just had a baby and I fell asleep whilst I was holding him. And the next thing I remember was early hours, it must have been probably five or six o'clock, I woke up and knew something was wrong and I realised I was holding him and I touched him and he was so cold. I thought, hang on a minute, this is not right. And I went into autopilot, so woke Jim up, started doing mouth to mouth. Jim was straight on the phone to the ambulance calling them. They seemed to come really quickly. They came straight on in and they took him away. We didn't go in the ambulance or anything like that. And the ambulance man said to us, we're going to Hull Royal, get yourself straight through, which we did. Mm. So we drove to Hull Royal. It will have been about six o'clock in the morning, I rang my dad and told him what had happened because the dog was all over the place, knew something was wrong. And when we got to the hospital, the first thing they did is they took us into the parents' waiting room. So at that stage, you kind of know that it's not right. And uh, the doctor and the nurse came in and the doctor's face just said it all. I looked at him and I said, he's gone, hasn't he? And he nodded. Was that the first point you realised really what had happened? I think I kind of knew beforehand. I think on the way there, you kind of know in your heart that, that he'd gone. I felt like that if he was alive, they might well have had at least one of us come in the ambulance I think they knew he was dead and we knew he was dead and that going to the hospital was going to be the confirmation of that. Louise, I'm so, so sorry to hear your story. How did they explain what happened? Do you remember mention of sudden infant death syndrome? Do you remember any mention of cot death or any explanation of why Ellis was no longer alive? No, they, they couldn't answer the questions. They gave us some leaflets for SANS and for the Foundation for Study into Infant Death, as it was called then, now it's Lullaby Trust. I think what we got from them more was the kindness of being able to see him. Our family were allowed to come in and see him. My mum was actually in London for the day, so she'd come back. And we spent quite a lot of that day at the hospital mm. um, just with him. And I'll never forget that parents' room. Every time we were in there, they brought him out and he had the clothes on that we'd taken in. They dressed him and it just looked like he was asleep. So you got to hold him that um, last time? Absolutely. Everybody got to hold him. Everybody who wanted to, um, not everybody did want to, but anyone who, you know, obviously of our close family that wanted to come and hold him absolutely could. And one of my husband's sisters had actually never seen him alive. So it was the first time she got to hold him was after he'd passed away. But uh, so, yeah, so that was really sad. Louise, how did you come to terms with what happened? Well, I don't think I ever have. Um, and I think that's because I don't know what happened because when they tell you it's SIDS there's no reason and that's why I, 
I think until I have got a definitive reason as to why he died, I don't think I'll ever fully come to terms with it. It's one of those things that people say, well, how do you get over it? Well, you never get over it. You just learn to live with it. But here we are, 19 years on, and there is still no reason for it for us and, and even longer for many families who went through this, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Anna Devlin, you're a science correspondent at The Guardian and you've written about sudden infant death syndrome. Can you tell me, first of all, historically, how have we understood this phenomenon? Sudden infant death syndrome is when an infant dies unexpectedly and it's normally between the age of a month and a year old. And these are babies that are otherwise healthy, there's no obvious signs of illness and then suddenly, without any warning, the baby dies in their sleep. And I think the understanding of this has changed quite a bit over time. So the formal diagnosis was created in in the 1960s. And before that, this was known as cock death. And it was often associated with maybe parental negligence or just a tragedy that couldn't be explained. And then once that term SIDS came in, it was given a medical diagnosis, I guess. And I think that was something that was really embraced by advocacy groups and parents who'd experienced that because it it just acknowledged that there was some medical cause for this. And even mm. if we didn't understand what it was yet, there was some sort of underlying medical problem that had caused the death. So how has our understanding of it developed since the 60s when it was first considered this is actually a medical condition? Yeah, so I think there's been a few important shifts over time. So it is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means you only give that diagnosis once you've ruled everything else out. And by definition, it's an unexplained death. But I think there's been a realisation since the term was created that that doesn't mean there's nothing you can do to avoid it. And there have been several big, very successful public health campaigns particularly around safe sleeping for babies that have helped really reduce the rates of SIDS in the developed world. How common is it? That's changed over time. So in the 80s, there were about one and a half thousand SIDS cases each year in the UK. And now that's come down to about 200 cases a year. That's (laughs) a really dramatic change in numbers. How, How have those stats come down? So this is pretty much entirely due to a very successful public health campaign called Back to Sleep, which is uh, the main message is putting your baby on their back when you put them to sleep rather than what had often been given advice to put babies on their tummies Mm. to go to sleep. And that was after some research showed that there was quite a strong link between um, babies sleeping on the tummy and the risk of sudden infant death. And when and how did the Back to Sleep campaign gain momentum? There was a few different pieces of evidence coming from different countries. But in the UK, um, the research came um, in the late 1980s um, from a Bristol doctor called Professor Peter Fleming. Duvets, similarly, can often be too thick and can easily come right up and cover the baby's head, so we don't recommend those. And cot bumpers, the things that go around the inside of the cot, again, can lead to babies getting too hot sometimes, and so again, we don't recommend them. He was interested in sudden infant death and what the risk factors were. And in one of the kind of population studies he did on it, he included a question on sleeping position. And I think at the time he just put it in there to kind of rule that out and was quite surprised when it then was flagged up as a 
risk factor when you right. looked over lots of babies. Around the same time, um, researchers in Australia and the Netherlands came up with um, some similar findings. But it was really when um, a TV presenter called Anne Diamond mm. lost her baby to SIDS that things began to change. There's no explanation at all. They just say sudden infant death syndrome, which is a diagnosis of nothing, really. It's basically saying, all right, it wasn't infanticide. It wasn't anything else that was suspicious. It was no known disease or anything. We don't know. It's a giant mystery that hangs over you, really, for the rest of your life. And she went to the government and said, we've really got to do something about this. We need to publicise this back to sleep message. And that was in the very early 1990s, uh, this back to sleep campaign was launched. I can't help thinking that if the advice had been available when Sebastian was alive, he wouldn't have died of cot death. Um, but overall, the statistics are fantastic. When we urged the government to make this campaign a year ago, we knew, because the, uh, the information from New Zealand and Bristol was overwhelming, we knew it would work, and it has worked. Anna, you've quite recently had a baby. What is the current advice for parents? Um, so on the basis of uh, th these findings, um, putting babies on their back to sleep is a really important one and really, really crucial. And then the NHS does have other advice too. So they advise the baby should be in a cot in the same room as you for the first six months. You should put babies with their feet to the end of the cot so there's less chance of them getting tucked under the blankets. And really important not to have any kind of duvets or loose blankets that they could end up under somehow. Mm. So either tuck the blankets down at the side or have the baby in something that they can't get lost under, basically. Right. And there's full advice on the NHS website. And even with all that progress, there are still 200 deaths like this a year in the UK. Do we understand why? There are still these deaths and, you know, by definition, if it's a SIDS diagnosis, we don't understand the cause. But there has been some progress in trying to pin down what some potential explanations are. So, for example, when um, scientists have looked back at postmortems of babies who've died, um, some of them have shown different levels of brain chemicals. There have been some that have had genes that are linked to heart arrhythmias. So there are signs there that there are underlying biological risk factors going on. And then the other two big risk factors that have been identified are smoking and pregnancy, which is linked to a more than threefold increase in risk right. of SIDS. And also premature babies and boys are at greater risk as well. So there's all these things that we do know but there's still as you say a lot that we don't and what effect has this gap in knowledge had on parents well I, I think there is a risk that this really successful public health message about safe sleeping has potentially given a perception that these deaths are avoidable and for the people who are now experiencing SIDS I think there's a risk that they could feel they're in some way to blame when, mm. in fact, it is still important to acknowledge that there are vulnerabilities underlying this and that there are probably medical reasons. Um, it's not just all about environmental factors. Louise, obviously you were going through an enormous amount of pain and grief. How did you process what happened to Ellis? How did you understand it? 
The first thing that happens is there's a police investigation. So whilst you're going through a really horrendous time, the police still have their job to do because a baby has died for no apparent reason. There was no markings on him to say that he'd hurt himself, that he'd not been diagnosed with any illness or anything like that. So they have to do that investigation. So by the time we actually got home from the hospital, there were police and scenes of crime people up our street. My dad was there and he'd let them in and they'd taken away the bedding, they'd taken away the used nappies, they'd taken away my night clothes, the bedding off our bed and in the pram as well that we had. And then we were assigned a policeman who saw us through the whole process, actually, from start to finish. And he was just brilliant. And to this day, I can remember his name. His name was Jez Fish. He was he just was a really nice man. He would contact us on his day off to ask any questions that the people doing the post-mortem had. And they, he never made me feel like I was ever guilty of anything. Some of the questions did, but I knew they weren't his questions. I was frightened that it maybe was my fault. So that that really was a concern for me. He would come to our house occasionally and my mum could ask him a lot of questions because she was very frightened, really, about the whole Sally Clark thing that had happened a couple of months earlier. So she was quite frightened that that sort of thing might happen to me. Clark and her husband, Stephen, have always insisted the children were victims of cot deaths. Hannah, could you tell me about the case of Sally Clark? She was a solicitor in Manchester and she was convicted for the murder of her two infant sons in the 1990s. Her first baby, Christopher, died at the age of 11 weeks and her second baby, Harry, died two years later at the age of eight weeks. Um, And in any of these cases, there's a post-mortem report to try and understand if there's a cause of death. And in that case, it was the pathologist's report that flag these cases to the police and the initial report which was presented at the trial suggested that there there was possible signs of trauma to the babies. She was later acquitted but what were the defining moments of the case that actually had it turned against her? One of the most defining moments of the case and probably the one that sticks in most people's mind was evidence, highly controversial evidence, that was given by a very eminent paediatrician called Roy Meadow. And he was talking about the chances of having two cot deaths within the same family. At Sally's trial, the jury was told there was only a one in 73 million chance both boys died of natural causes. He presented this evidence that one single cot death, there was a chance of one in eight and a half thousand And so he said the probability of two cot deaths in the same family was around one in 73 million. He also later said one sudden infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious and three is murder until proved otherwise. Um, So he's effectively putting the onus on the defence to explain what the medical establishment has not been able to explain in decades of research into this. Now, that evidence was later discredited, but I think those figures really um, made an impact at the trial. They are what stuck in a lot of people's minds and very widely reported in the press at the time. And I think it does also tell you something about how sudden infant death syndrome was viewed, that it's almost just like this mysterious random chance event that happens and to have two of them 
you know, two of these incredibly rare events in one family is just unbelievable, uh, effectively. Completely discounting the idea that there might actually be any sort of genetic or underlying biological cause that you might expect to run in a family, for example. And since then, there has been research backing that up, showing that there is a higher chance of having another baby die after a baby in a family has um, had sudden infant death syndrome. So Roy Meadows' theory actually impacted the trial quite a bit. And what happened to Sally? So Sally Clark was convicted on the basis of that trial in 1999. But even at the time, there was a big response from both people in the medical community, also statisticians um, saying that this was a flawed piece of evidence that Roy Meadows presented and that statistics simply don't work like that. You can't treat something like a cot death as a completely random event. The risk of a sudden infant death is something like 1 in 8,300 or so. The risk of the second child is nearer 1 in 100. And that's why Meadows' law doesn't make sense. And that is why Meadows' law is wrong. It would be true if they were all independent events, but they are not. Dr Walters concludes the law is in fact a myth and has now sent his findings to the British Medical Journal. There were also questions over the pathologist's report and the way the pathology had been done in the original post-mortems. Claire Montgomery QC told the court that at the end of 2000, the defence team discovered there was clear evidence of an infection of Staphylococcus aureus in baby Harry's spinal fluid, an infection that may have caused his death. But the prosecution pathologist who conducted post-mortems on both Harry and Christopher failed to disclose this information. And so that eventually led to a successful appeal and the conviction was overturned in 2003. And Roy Meadow was eventually discredited. What happened to him? He was struck off by the GMC and it was partly because of the Sally Clark case, but he'd also given evidence in several other cases involving sudden infant death that had left to the conviction of two other women and he gave evidence at another trial of a woman who was acquitted. Professor Sir Roy Meadow left Redding Crown Court with some haste after giving evidence in the Tripti Patel case and he has so far not reappeared to comment on the fact that Mrs Patel was found not guilty despite his assertion that the death of three babies in one family was unlikely to be natural. And you know, there's obviously very deep concern about uh, the nature of the evidence that he'd given at these trials. He was later reinstated, but it you know, certainly had a big impact on his reputation. And how did it impact Sally Clark? It is a, a truly tragic story. And this was a woman who'd already suffered the tragedy of losing two babies. And she also had a third baby during the legal proceedings and spent several years in prison. And so not only was she denied her freedom, but she was not able to be with her, her third child in the first years of, of their lives. Earlier, Sally Clark had paid the most moving of tributes to her husband. He has stood by me and supported me throughout this whole nightmare, not, not through blind love or unthinking loyalty, but because he knows me better than anyone else and know how much I loved our babies. He's been our rock. And I love him now more than ever. Being separated from him for so long has been a living hell. Being deprived of more than three years of being a mum to our little boy 
has been even worse. Her family say that she never recovered from that experience and very sadly she died in 2007 from alcohol poisoning. Louise, how much did the Sally Clark case play on your mind? Oh, a lot, an absolute lot. I remember because it was really just before I'd had Ellis and was really fresh in the news. Were you ever seriously worried about getting charged? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Especially when they started asking questions about suffocation, because mm. even if it had have been suffocation, it would have been accidental because I was asleep. But the fact is, I wouldn't have been able to prove that one way or the other. So when they started asking that, I thought that's when they're going to start accusing me of having done something, which I knew I hadn't done. But the fact is, Sally Clark had been sent to prison for something she hadn't done. And so the worry was always there. Was I going to then be sent to prison for suffocating my baby, which I hadn't done, and they later then proved I hadn't done, but you don't know. I was asleep, so I, I don't know. But, uh, that, but that's a guilt I'll just have to live with forever. You mentioned that you felt guilty because he fell asleep in your arms and you know, you know rationally that it's not your fault. Is there any way to sort of push back on that? How do you cope with it? Well, I suppose with my grown-up head on, I just I know full well that it's not my fault and there's proof that it's not my fault, but it is irrational. You're quite right in your use of words there. That it is an irrational thought that it is my fault. If somebody dies in your arms, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, you are going to feel bad about it. You know, I, I did mouth-to-mouth -mouth on him and we did chest compressions and all of those sorts of things and we still couldn't save him. I suspect it's probably because he had already died and so we were never going to bring him back. But if I'd have perhaps woken up half an hour earlier, would it have been a different story? I don't know. It's, um, it just is and there's nothing I can do to change it. Coming up, research has been ongoing, but how close are we now to parents getting answers on SIDS? Anna, in 2001, a genetic mutation was discovered that was linked to SIDS. How did this affect the understanding of sudden infant death syndrome and parental responsibility? So there hasn't really been a gene, a single gene, that mm. explains most of the cases. But that's not to say that there aren't important genetic factors. It's probably we're talking about contributions from lots of different genes or very rare mutations that are kind of different between different babies. So they're hard to spot when you do these kinds of studies. There's plenty of evidence that genetics plays a part. It's just that there's not a SIDS gene that right. explains most of these cases. So what have been the other key scientific developments over the last 20, 30 years, which has basically broadened our understanding of how SIDS happens and why it happens? I think it's important to note at this point, there haven't been any real reductions in the number of SIDS since that back to sleep campaign. So I think the remaining deaths, there probably are medical issues that explain them but we still don't really have very good answers about what the explanation is in all these cases. And we don't even know in a lot of cases how the baby died. So we're not sure whether it's the heart stopping or, you know, often it's assumed that it's to do with the baby stopping breathing, but it's not really even clear sometimes what, um, you know, what kind of vulnerabilities we're looking for. 
So there doesn't seem to have been a major scientific breakthrough in understanding SIDS. But there was a new significant study published recently. Can you tell me a bit about that? So this was a study that came out from an Australian team of researchers led by a researcher called Carmel Harrington. And she had lost her own son, Damien, to SIDS 29 years ago and has been on a personal as well as an academic quest to try and understand the condition. Well, this is being called potentially a breakthrough in understanding the cause of sudden infant death syndrome. Small study just published in eLancet. They identified a biomarker that's a substance found in blood samples of babies who had died from SIDS. And they found that SIDS babies had lower levels of an enzyme called butyl cholesterase, um, which is an enzyme that plays a major role in the brain's arousal system. And so what they concluded from this was this could mean that these babies had a reduced ability to wake up or respond if there was some kind of environmental factor such as overheating or a blanket over their face um, that could cause a vulnerability to SIDS. How solid do we think the conclusions are from this study? The studies from a really well-respected world-leading team, and I think it's been viewed as an extremely important observation because it's the first time that there has ever been a biochemical marker that you could test from the blood that's been identified that could flag up a risk of SIDS at birth. And these samples were taken from newborn heel prick screening, so it's the dried blood samples that had been kept from more than 600 healthy babies and then 26 babies who'd gone on to die from SIDS. They were comparing the two groups. So overall, there were lower levels of this chemical in the SIDS babies and there was a statistical difference between the two groups, but I think it's worth flagging that there was also quite a lot of overlap. So about half of the babies in the SIDS group overlapped with about half of the babies in the normal group. And I think that just gives you an idea that this is not something that we could use at the moment in a newborn screening test. It's not like you've got two really distinct clusters and you mm. could do the test and say, okay, your baby's definitely at risk here. It's not precise enough for an individual level screening at this point. As a science correspondent, I would expect nothing less for you to be very measured and rational about the data presented in front of you. But does the level of excited coverage about this study suggest that there is just so much of a desire for there to be an understandable cause of how SIDS exists? Yeah, I mean, I think it reflects what an emotive subject is and what a tragic thing it is for any family that experiences that baby dying silently in an unexplained way completely alone at night and then not having an answer as to what's happened to your baby anything that brings us a bit closer to understanding what's what's happened what's gone on and how we can try and reduce that happening in the future is I think that's what explains the level of interest so what do you think are the next steps is there still quite a lot of research still going on yeah, so I think, I mean, one thing that we don't really know yet, because these were anonymised samples, we don't know, for example, whether this is like a completely new risk factor or whether maybe this is kind of what explains why babies whose mothers smoked when they were pregnant. Maybe this is the biological explanation for why those babies are at risk. So maybe this is why they're vulnerable. So I think the first thing is to understand what we're looking at here and try and kind of understand a bit better how this links in with the other risk factors we already know about. And then we mentioned screening and the idea of whether you'd be able to predict which babies were at risk. And I think there's a really big question still about 
whether you'd want to do that and how you would do that because it's a a sort of general principle in medicine that you don't want to do screening unless you can take some kind of action once you have the results right Um, and so you have to think really carefully about what parents could do with that information I think you know a lot of parents uh, with even without being told something like that will have worried about their their child gone and checked on them millions Mm. of times you know that they're, they're still breathing in their sleep if you kind of combined it with other information you know about which babies are vulnerable and gave those parents extra support in kind of following safe sleep advice for, for instance perhaps mm. that be helpful but you you also have to be really mindful of um you know first not just kind of creating anxiety without actually helping people and also any unintended consequences so you wouldn't want to tell people for example that they're at low risk and there'd be a chance of them not feeling as though they had to follow safe sleep advice so those kind of things would have to be balanced really carefully louise It's still very early days in the research, but what would it mean to you to have a conclusive explanation for why these deaths happen? Well, it would mean everything. It would absolutely mean everything because if someone could say to me, right, Ellis died because he was deficient in this enzyme in his blood and he just didn't rouse himself, then at least I know that it really wasn't my fault and it was really just one of those things that just happened but it's still a a proper reason for why it happened it would mean everything to me and I'm sure it would to most other people in my situation as well that was Louise Barrett my thanks to her and to Hannah Devlin you can read more about SIDS and Hannah's reporting on the new research at theguardian.com if you're affected by anything we've discussed today You can find support at www.lullabytrust.org.uk or by calling their bereavement support helpline on 0808 802 6868. You can also find advice on safe sleeping on the NHS website. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams. Sound design is by Solomon King. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 